Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to another episode of Restoring the Soul. This is part two, the second of a two-part conversation with Dr. Chuck DeGroat, who is a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Chuck has a ton of credentials and does a lot of different things. He is a spiritual entrepreneur. Uh, He is passionate about spiritual formation and mission, and how those two intersect. And he's the author of several books, including Leaving Egypt, Finding God in Wilderness Places, The Toughest People to Love, which is a book about how leaders can care for difficult people, Wholeheartedness, which is a book about wholeness and how to become whole, specifically in our shame-based and perfectionistic culture. And he has a fourth book coming out with InterVarsity Press in early 2020, about narcissism. We will pick up the conversation where we left off, and I think we're talking about wholeheartedness and purity redefined from some of the typical ways that we talk about it. To learn more about Chuck and his programs and his books, you can visit his website, and I'll spell his last name for you in just a minute, but it is chuckdegroat.net. And so it's Chuck, and then last name D-E-G-R-O-A-T, chuckdegroat.net. Thanks so much for listening. It's really appreciated, and I hope that you're being encouraged, especially by this conversation with Dr. Chuck DeGroat. A couple directions I want to go. Um, You defined purity not as I didn't sin or as that the purity is the absence of contamination, but you define purity as um, wholeheartedness and undividedness. And this has huge implications for those that struggle with, uh, with sexual compulsions. It has huge implications for teenagers that are trying not to, you know, go too far with their boyfriend or girlfriend, because this whole purity idea has been a pass fail as opposed to, a process that's actually about something other than uncontaminated. 
that's it. The, probably the two most misunderstood words in the Gospels are purity and perfection, um, both of which get at this idea of wholeness of heart. You know, the, the word for perfection tell us too is this word um, in the Greek that gets at wholeness. Um, uh, that it does. It has nothing to do. Either one of those words have, have nothing to do with the kind of moral purity, a kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but returning to presence, returning to the ground of our own being. That's why the Beatitudes start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, the word in the Greek there is the word patokos, blessed are the broken hearted, those who've come to the end of themselves. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, that's what Bill Wilson discovered, you know, right back uh, in what the early 20th century, that we begin with this reality that we're powerless. Um, we can't control our lives. We can't manage our lives. And out of that is born a purity. So for those who are trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and consider that some form of, of, um, of, of moral purity, it just, it won't work. It can't work. Uh, there's no self-help behavioral way of, of doing this. And more often than not, it's just, it's stumbling into it than climbing your way up to it. Well, and I wonder what the implications of this would be if we began to have this understanding of purity with teenagers in youth groups and in sex education and everything else, that it's not about pushing away your sexual desires or trying to be uncontaminated, but it's about uh, engaging with life and God and others in your heart to be holy. Yeah. That would be a yeah. game changer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I don't know about you, but I grew up with this uh, definition of sin as missing the mark. Yes. And, um, but if you read that through the lens of, of you know, we we're, were talking about Martin Laird a moment ago, uh, Martin Laird and other contemplative uh, spiritual theologians. It's really what I would say is it's missing the center, you know, and our center is God. And so in a sense, it's living um, de-centered. It's living apart from our center in God. So I, I actually believe union with God is original. Um, and that may be controversial, and I may lose my job over this, but I'm tenured, so I hope that's okay. But um, um, I, I think union with God is original. I think that's what, what it means to be an image bearer. Um, I think it's we who've gone away. You know, and Augustine says this over and over again, and I think Augustine is a pretty reliable source, you know. God is more near to me than I am to myself, he says. Um, he says, God is within. It's I who've gone away. and so. Even Augustine, the father of original sin, would say, in a sense, sin is, is journeying away from the center, away from God, who is already more near to you than you are to yourself. Oh, that's beautiful. And then, I'm not sure if Augustine continues with this thought, but um, we can move away, but then Psalm 139, this beautiful reality of David saying, but where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee yeah, from right. your presence? You know, yeah. so no matter where we go, even he says, if I go to the darkness, even there, yeah. darkness yeah. will give light to you. So we run, we turn, but God comes after us. And therefore, yeah. I think of the picture of somebody who tandem jumps with a parachute out of a plane. If you've ever seen one of those videos, you know, the, the person who's jumping for the first time, they're on the front, and then the person behind them is the expert who's going to pull the cord. And that's always the image of the fall was us turning away, kind of jumping out of the plane, but that God comes like Velcro, and we're not separate yeah. from him. It's our absence of awareness of that connection 
And then sin yeah. is then living in that autonomy and independence as if he's not there and our eyes are blinded. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, what you just said, and I think this basic concept can be so healing, not that concepts themselves heal, but the re- experienced reality of, of this, this fact that God is, is more near, that God dwells within. Um, for the addict who thinks God must be so far away right now, just kind of looking at me from above uh, with an angry face, you know, this idea that God is sort of tenderly waiting and, um, and inviting and uh, that it's, that it's, it's sort of okay. I mean, I, but people I've worked with when, when that reality dawns on them, that God never went away. Like God, God's seen a lot over the years, you know, like God is God. I think sometimes we, we, we sort of oversimplify or minimize who get like God is God. God's seen a lot over the years. God's seen any version of what you're going through, any version of, of your addiction. And, and God simply continues to invite you back to um, God's self from within. And that's, it, it's sort of like, oh yeah, I can rest into that. Like, it's not about like, now I got to clean up and then I've got to do it for a year. And then maybe God will want to have a conversation with me and he won't be mad anymore. Um, it's like, no, that's not the way God operates at all. Yeah. That resting into it. I call that. I get to finally spiritually exhale. Ah, oh, that's so good. And then I can just uh, breathe and, and learn to breathe. That's it. That's the gift. So we were talking about the idea of purity, the other direction I wanted to go, and I'm actually pretty amazed that I remember this and circle back around to it, is um, this idea of wholeheartedness. Uh, there's probably not a person listening who goes, wholeheartedness, nah, I don't want that. Everybody wants that, and it kind of seems like this great idea. And I think most people are tuned in at some level to their brokenness or their brokenheartedness and and the fact that they're not wholehearted. But what's the in-between space? What do we need to move into to go from the the experienced reality that we're broken and not wholehearted into the wholeheartedness? You had mentioned some of the slowing down kinds of things, but, but what else? I do think that there's, if, if you look at the, uh, the spiritual tr- tradition, just for a moment, uh, there, there's a kind of tried and true pathway, if you will, like uh, whether you're reading Bernard of Clairvaux or St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and the spiritual direct trajectory is always through the darkness. You know, it's always, um, there, there's this trust fall, like you were just talking about a moment ago. And, um, uh, so what that means is that when you when you read these folks and then you know then some of the contemporary folks that you and I um, appreciate as well uh, they'll they'll always tell you that there's a part of the journey where you're just trying to fix it on your own um, for Saint Teresa of Avila the great 16th century saint um, and reformer and mystic uh, uh, it's the third mansion in her interior castle where um, you're, you're on your journey to God into the seventh mansion. And in the third mansion, you're trying to do that journey via control. And uh, your, your fists are clenched and you're trying to figure it out in your own. But it seems that in God's economy of things, this is the, this is the way you've got to, to do it. You've got to go on a journey that actually, in, in, in one sense, 
invites you and maybe even requires you to try and do it on your own to discover that you can't do it on your own. And that's, that's somewhat paradoxical. And I think all good theology and psychology ends up being somewhat paradoxical. And so, for instance, the spiritual disciplines um, are not like uh, the seven keys to um, radical intimacy with God. I mean, any, anyone who practices the Ignatian examine uh, regularly, this kind of ancient 16th century um, prayer practice of looking at and reflecting on your, your life and your day or, or practices contemplative or centering prayer will tell you that they discover in that process um, how not to do it or how you stumble or how you've tried to go it on your own or um, how not present you are. And so the, the paradox, the, the in-between stage is that stage of, of um, trying and failing and trying and failing. And I think that this is where um, we need a more robust of theology of this, in a sense, this in-between stage, maybe you might say, because, um, or this, what John of the Cross calls this dark night of the soul, because this is often where we lose heart. We try and we try and try and we feel like a failure. And um, we, we end up with some form of, for the rest of our life, a sin management strategy or trying to do, you know, do, do relationship with God rather than resting in God. And we don't have those elders and our and spiritual directors in our lives saying, you know, there's another way. Um, there's another way. And um, it, it's actually the way through the struggle, the way through your failure. Um, we have churches that continue to sort of teach sin management, the gospel of moralism and sin management. And so the, the middle passage, I think, is, is always a passage into uncertainty, into unknowing. And it really, this is the work I think we do um, with our intensives, our retreats, our counseling, is inviting people into that paradoxical space, into that liminal space. Now that, that liminal space, you know, in, in the Bible, that's, that's um, you know, that's three days in the belly of the whale, that's 40 years in the, the wilderness, that's 40 days in the desert, it's three nights in hell, whatever, you know, whatever the image is in the Bible, the imagery seems to say that it's painful and it's going to take a while. But the reality is, is that's the only way it's, you know, the, the transformation process of the, the caterpillar comes through the chrysalis stage, the dying of the old self so that the new self can emerge. And I think that probably you and I would agree, there's no textbook strategy for that there. But I think what we need are we need guides, we need wise uh, spiritual guides on the journey who aren't merely into fixing us, but stewarding this journey. Um, and that's really all I do when I do this work is I steward the journey. I, I'm not smart enough to fix anyone. I'm not powerful enough to fix anyone, but I have done enough for the journey myself to be able to say, yeah, that's about right. That, that fall <laughs> that you just had, or that, that pain that you're experiencing or that trauma um, symptom that's emerging. That's, that's expected. It's okay. I'm here. God's here. Let's keep walking. I love what you said. Uh, that's expected because uh, I was uh, doing some healing prayer with somebody about two years ago, and they had an image of Jesus where they were in this moment of pretty significant sin, and they were really ashamed of it. And I said, ask Jesus what he wants to say to you. And Jesus, hmm looked at him and he said, well, of course. <laughs> mm. and, and it was this idea that, did you expect that you would just flip a switch and stop doing that? 
you know, you, yeah. you were deeply, deeply wounded and deeply bound up in shame and deeply bound up in trauma. And when he heard Jesus say that, it just undid him with not, not remorse and sorrow, but with laughter and joy. Like Jesus had no expectation that he would somehow just read his Bible out of this. And it was really a freeing idea. God is not surprised. Uh, I always like to say God is really secure. You know, that nothing shocks God. Um, I didn't learn about the security of God as a, like an attribute of God in my systematic theology classes, but I, I love it. I mean, I, I think about how it's felt when I've been in the presence of a secure adult and generally an older male and older female who, you know, sort of as much as they can has sort of gotten over their stuff and nothing surprises them. And um, I had a, back in the day when I was a 27 year old counseling grad student, I had a supervisor like that who just, every time I said the next shocking thing, it just seemed like he smiled and he said, Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks for telling me. It was just so good and so important. And it, he, he was really a conduit to a transformed image of God. I think we need guides like that, but we also need language. And one of my reasons for doing this podcast, and especially this one with you, is I, I think um, one of my callings is to give people language for what's happening inside of them and to point people toward others, including authors, writers, thinkers, poets, etc., that can give people language for that journey, for that in-between space, or for whichever of those spaces that we're in. That's right. That we need we need a recovery of that kind of language, and um, and I think it's it's tough, particularly in the United States, in white churches in particular, where there's this kind of up and to the right spirituality, this you know climb the ladder to Jesus kind of spirituality, which is sort of native to. Kind of the American ideas of exceptionalism and progress, we, we don't as much have the language for that. When I talk about this stuff in, in kind of pretty typically Western white contexts that are very individualistic and up and to the right, uh, it's like, okay, so now now that you've said that, now tell me the solution. You know, now the pla- the black church gets this because the black church has been writing um, spirituals of of suffering for, you know, for 150 plus years, right? 200 years. And so people in the margins get this, uh, people in pain get this. Our clients, as, as they've navigated the journey, suddenly have language for these liminal spaces. Ah, yeah, the dark night of the soul. I never knew what that was until, until I walked through it myself. Yeah, that language of lament and the language of suffering yeah. and how God is there when you have that language, it really allows us to integrate all of our lives into the gospel. And I've, I've discovered personally, and as I've worked with people, that that language can also change your, your politics and what you yeah. pursue as the end goals in life. And ultimately, uh, it just gives more freedom that our, our life in God is way more spacious than I thought it was. Yeah, it's almost like you don't you don't need the the fuel, the addictive fuel of of those kinds of things. You know those those arguments that you get into those those Facebook conversations that go back and forth. You know for for twenty or thirty different posts arguing back and forth, trying to convince the other. You realize life is not about competing, competing or convincing or fixing or 
changing someone else's mind. It's, it's about creating space for relationship, right? Um, I, maybe that's why we do what we do that animates us because we've seen the life that happens in, in those spaces. I mean, I, I've, I've gotten to know people who've gone through your intensives and workshops and there's a space that is created for their story, for the contradictory emotions. And suddenly I, I feel seen and I feel known and, um, and, and, and maybe life isn't as black and white as I thought. Maybe it's not like I'm good boy today and bad boy the next day, but maybe God holds all of these things and holds all of my contradictions and, um, and I'll be okay. That's a real gift. So Chuck, you are an academic and as far as I know, or maybe early in your life, you came from a reformed tradition. How did you step into the contemplative writers and the, the classic mothers and fathers of the church? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wouldn't consider myself an academic. Um, I've got colleagues who I would, but, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm curious. I'm a really curious person who sort of follows the trail and, um, I happen to get a PhD along the way, um, from a, a pretty third rate school, but I, I, I don't know. I managed to, to get a job at a seminary. So I'm happy about that. And I won't be too self-critical about it, but I guess what I'd say is it was sort of a providential thing. It was in the summer of 1997 that I was a pretty uptight, certain young reformed guy, 27 years old. And I went over to Oxford university for a summer to study. And um, I had the opportunity to take a class with um, a reformed theologian named Alistair McGrath, who I think himself during that time was going through a kind of midlife crisis. And he, he was having us read the mystics. Um, Lady Julian of Norwich, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, um, some other writings from uh, Reformed and Puritan thinkers that I'd never been exposed to before. And I was initially really resistant because I thought, well, we're not allowed to read these people. But then really, really, really curious. And um, I think what I discovered now, I, I'd still say that um, kind of my baseline um, uh, theological container is the Reformed tradition, but I certainly don't see it as Reformed as opposed to, I see it as a kind of a space that holds me, a tradition that holds me, that allows me to explore beyond it. But I, I, I'd say that one of the things that um, I, I've, uh, I've, I've had suffering uh, are, are some uh, pathways into um, Reformed folks that we don't talk about often. Um, there are this a whole group of pastors in the 17th century who were reformed mystics. And uh, even though they sort of came out of reformation thinking, they were deeply influenced by Bernard of Clairvaux and some of the other mystics. And so I think even in my own kind of broader theological tradition, there are resources for more contemplative spirituality, but, um, but I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the big, what they call the big tradition, you know, that, um, that sees, Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters and Catholic brothers and sisters as, as, uh, as, as brothers and sisters um, rather than theological foes. It is so good to talk with you. We are out of time. I'm honoring the boundary that we set because I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Just enough to make me want to get on a plane and come hang out with you and certainly to continue yeah. the conversation. So thank you so much for, for uh, not just what you do, but who you are and the impact that you've had um, so broadly. And now even through 
through your podcast. Um, it's, I, I, it's an honor to be on this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Bless you. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.